Good morning. It's good to see everybody. We are continuing our, a series that we began last week. So for a little bit over a month, we're going to kind of take a little bit of more of a careful look into some of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. And so this can certainly be a, a pretty sensitive subject, you know, controversial as all of us um, have friends, many of us have family, uh, certainly co-workers, and just a, a variety of contexts where we interact with other Roman Catholics, and, and there's just a, a diverse level of uh, um, adherence to Catholicism amongst those Roman Catholics that we would know. And so, you know, we don't, we don't want to say too much, but we certainly don't want to say too little about what we know to be true about um, the Roman Catholics that we know. We know what the church teaches, the Roman Catholic Church. And so what we want to do is dive into some of those Roman Catholic teachings and zoom in and look at uh, some of the, just the problematic, even anti-gospel um, approach to the way they view certain things. And so, so last week we talked about the scriptures, uh, this primary issue of authority. And, and so this week what we're going to do is kind of take more of a look at actually what takes place when, um, when, when a mass uh, begins and ends, what, what takes place during a mass, uh, focusing in primarily on the Eucharist. And so this morning, really, we're looking at the Roman Catholic Mass, and we're going to talk quite a bit about the Eucharist. Uh, there's other things we want to look at over the next few weeks. We're going to look at justification. Um, there is a, a, a massive uh, chasm between what would be understood by a Protestant evangelical about what the Bible teaches about justification by faith alone and what... Um, what a Roman Catholic teaching would communicate in regards to justification. Um, they might use certain terms that sound similar, but, but the issue of faith alone, we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about what uh, the church teaches about Mary. And then there's just going to be one week where we just look at a variety of, of uh, other concerns that we would have with Roman Catholic doctrine. And so that there's much that we could do. Um, don't want to spend, you know, too much time just introducing that. Let's go ahead and just pray and begin then looking at our handout this morning about the Roman Catholic Mass. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we desire to see you glorified this day as we gather as the people of God. Uh, we desire to sit under the Word of God. Um, you've spoken through your Word, and our right response is to believe your Word, to know your Word to proclaim your word, to defend your word. And, and so that's what motivates even any time we, we confront other uh, teaching that would be contrary to the scriptures. So may scripture be our, our guide. May we approach it with humility. Pray for clarity even in these conversations. Um, I pray it would be helpful and most importantly that it would bring you glory. We look forward to the worship that will take place in our time that we gather even in this next hour as well as we sing praises to you and sit under the preaching of God's word. So we look forward to this time together as the people of God. Be glorified in it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I begin with at the top of your handout, kind of in the center there under that title, the Roman Catholic Mass. I just put what is historically a pretty famous quote from really an early church father when he would describe the importance of the church in the life of the faithful. Uh, Cyprian would say, outside the church, there is no salvation. Now, what's interesting, even interpreting that statement through 
you know, in an evangelical lens, we can, we can redeem much of that statement when, when we're recognizing what, like even Calvin would have been quite comfortable with, with such a, a statement um, with uh, some clarification what was meant there. But when we recognize, you know, it, someone who loves God is going to love God's people. So even as you walk through 1 John, you just see that the, the right context for, for a, a genuine believer is to be in the context of a local church. And so you don't see uh, Christians out side of the church. That's not the norm. And so, so when you uh, even hear a phrase like that by Cyprian, outside the church there is no salvation, I think we could look at that and understand how we might be able to uh, arrive at some level of agreement in, in much of what is said there. But when a, when a Roman Catholic looks at this statement, there, there's actually a lot of reasons why this would be very true for someone who, who follows the Roman Catholic faith, because as we're going to walk through, the, it's very much a, a sacramental uh, faith. The sacraments are of utmost importance. In fact, they're necessary for salvation. And so when we look at just one sacrament today in particular, the Eucharist, in fact, just go ahead and say this, uh, there, there are seven sacraments in the um, Roman Catholic church, when we recognize from us, like if, if we were going to equate the term sacrament with like an ordinance, which I'm not even sure is a safe thing to, to equate the two, but we, we have two ordinances in our church, you know, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So in the Roman Catholic church, they would practice, they, they see seven different acts as, as sacraments. And the sacraments are very much necessary for salvation. They're actually the means by which God infuses grace into the life of the faithful so that they can indeed be more faithful and grow. So the more grace infused, the more godliness that they are capable of, the more venial sins that they're able to battle and certainly avoid mortal sins. These would be the kind of understandings that, that Roman Catholics would have about the importance of sacraments. And so then when you think, okay, if sacraments are very much important, who is it that can administer sacraments? And so Roman Catholic theology would teach only the priests in, in the context of, you know, um, that their priestly duties would be able to administer these sacraments. And so if the sacraments are necessary for salvation and it's necessary that the priests carry out these sacraments, you outside of the church, there is no salvation because you are in need of the sacraments and you're in need of priests to administer these sacraments. So let me just even give you a little bit of, of a taste of how this would be played out in the mind of a Roman Catholic. I was reading kind of like a, a Q&A kind of section of a, a, a website um, regarding just Roman Catholic spirituality. And here's the question that somebody asked to a priest. They said, I converted to the Catholic faith from Protestantism, but sometimes my family wants me to attend the Protestant church with them. I feel this is wrong since the Catholic church is the true church of Christ, but I don't want to offend them. So I wanted to see if it's okay to occasionally worship with them. This would be the question that a uh, um, a recently converted Roman Catholic would be asking of a Roman Catholic priest. So here's the response. The priest writes, I hope that you are discovering its many treasures regarding the, speaking of the Catholic Church. He said, congratulations, I'm sorry. Congratulations on entering the Catholic Church. And so he says, I hope that you are discovering its many treasures among which the most valuable is the Eucharist. So we'll talk about that here in a little bit about why this would be the most valuable blessing and benefit of, of what someone receives treasures in context of being in the church. 
So he says, I hope you're, you're benefiting from what's most valuable. The Eucharist, the very body and blood of Christ made present among us is at the center of the mass. That is why the Catholic mass is a unique form of worship. It is the highest form of prayer we can offer to God. Again, this is the priest's words to this questioner. These are not Doug's words. Um, here, I, just, I know this is lengthy, but I just want to point out a few things. I think it's helpful to see the mindset. It's also in a class by itself, the Eucharist. And so here the priest writes, this means that no Protestant service can substitute it. So if you're thinking of going to a Protestant service in lieu of Sunday Mass, the answer is no. The Protestant service would not fulfill the Sunday Holy Day obligation. And so we'll see this played out in some of what we read, but the priest, the priest answer to this, hey, used to be Protestant, have family that's Protestant, wondering about maybe going with them, and rather than actually going to mass, I might just substitute going to a Protestant service in place of the mass. How's that sound? And the priest is saying, that doesn't sound good from a Catholic perspective because you'd miss out on the Eucharist, and the Eucharist is this uh, most valuable uh, event to treasure as a Catholic. This would be what his answer is saying. And he's saying a Protestant service is not able, they cannot substitute because there are not right priests rightly administering the right sacrament, the right way, the Eucharist. And the Eucharist, as we'll see, is necessary for salvation. That would be the mindset um, in accordance with Roman Catholic doctrine. So as you were beginning in this handout that you have in front of you, that's why I do think it just kind of, helpful to begin with this mindset of outside the church, there is no salvation in the mind of a faithful Roman Catholic because it's within the, the mass that they are going to um, be given, uh, participate in, observe uh, the Eucharist. So what takes place during a Roman Catholic mass? In my youth, I attended uh, Roman Catholic Mass a, a few times, uh, and I was not at all paying attention to any of it, so I wouldn't be able to tell you what was, was going on. But um, and I'm at the point now, and, and I'm going to say this at the very end, I, I think I'd be very clear that, that uh, we, we have no business participating in a Roman Catholic Mass in regards to, like, when we read about what's going on in the Eucharist, we as um, Bible-believing Christians should not um, partake of the Eucharist like uh, under the context of a Roman Catholic Mass. Now, there may be settings where somebody attends a Roman Catholic Mass. I even know in, um, in seminary, I chose not to go, but even in seminary in our, like one of our, the worshiping church class, you're supposed to go to like a high liturgy, high church setting. You're supposed to go to kind of like a, a variety of different type of churches, and they wanted you to observe. And I didn't want to go to a, um, a Roman Catholic Mass for that high church setting, so I went to a, a liberal Episcopal church. I, I, um, I'm not sure which, which was the right decision, but I'm just saying, like, I, I was kind of <laughs> uncomfortable, and I really wasn't trying to make a joke there, actually, but, like, I just mean, like, I, I, did, I was uncomfortable in my conscience of attending uh, a Mass. And so what, what I want to show you, though, as we walk through this question of what takes place during a Roman Catholic Mass, I am recognizing that, that I'm reading from a book rather than quoting from experience. You know what I mean? Uh, in, in regards to, to what now, now I am able to go to, you know, websites and read through what, what even from uh, a 
in Roman Catholic do doctrine in regards to the different events that take place in a mass. But what I was gonna do is read from, there's a, he's actually been here before. He taught on the doctrine of the church. Uh, Greg Allison was his name. And he's written a helpful book that just kind of answers certain questions about Roman Catholicism. And I'm just gonna read his description of what takes place in, in, a, in a mass. And it, what you have in front of you is, is really kind of like, some summary points. This is not all, but these are some of the general uh, events, parts. Parts would be a better word. I keep saying events. These would be the different parts of the Mass. And so essentially, ever since Vatican II, the Mass is characterized in two parts. So you have this liturgy of the Word, and you have the, the liturgy of the Eucharist. That was not always the case. In fact, the reason Vatican II made certain changes was because there was just very little Bible in a mass. And, and it, the still today, even if there's more Bible, still the emphasis and the focus, and you even just heard it in that guy's statement, that priest who said, you know, the greatest blessing of attending mass is the Eucharist. So there's still an emphasis. If you think of like a Protestant reformed evangelical, what is the highlight of our gatherings? It's, it's the preached word. Um, we're commanded, if you even think through, you know, the, what we're instructed to do, there's more than just preach the word when we gather. We sing together, we pray together, we read the Bible together, we give tithes, offerings, we, um, we observe the Lord's Supper, we, we um, observe baptism, all these things that we're instructed to do. There is this liturgy but, uh, that we are to follow but the preached word is this, the highlight of our gatherings. And in the Roman Catholic context, um, the highlight of the mass in regards to the parts of the mass, the Eucharist is the, the, the highest of emphasis. And so let me just kind of read this. I, you have those words in front of you to follow between the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, but I just appreciated how, how he parsed this out. So just kind of listen as he describes what happens during a Roman Catholic mass. As the mass begins, the priest and several lay leaders process from the back of the sanctuary to the front, walking in the nave or center aisle. They carry a sizable crucifix, a large Bible, and a censer. In the introduction, the priest greets the Catholic faithful, then leads them in a penitential act in which they remember their sins and plead with God for mercy. Um, anybody know what that's called? Uh, Kyrie well, eleison, uh, when, you're, when you're crying out for mercy. You know, we sing, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. You know, we, sing, we sing this. So I'm not saying, it's not this. We, we cry out for uh, our sins to be forgiven, to plead with God for mercy. But that, that's what would take place. They, they cry out, they plead for mercy. Um, the priest offers the collect, that like an opening prayer that collects the intentions of the faithful and prepares them to hear the word of God. So, so these are all of the um, introductory rites that I just read about. Those are the introductory things that take place at a mass. Then this is where the liturgy of the word begins. The introduction leads into the liturgy of the word, uh, the first movement of the mass. It features three readings of scripture. So you have the Old Testament, the New Testament, and a gospel reading. That's what would take place in, in the reading of scripture. Um, and then uh, following these readings, the priest delivers a homily. It's a pretty short sermon. And a homily is usually based on one or, or all of, of what was just read in regards to Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels. So there's a little homily um, that explains those three readings. 
Uh, then the, the participants also pray the prayer of the faithful, interceding for themselves, the church, the world, those who suffer, and their community. So that would be all that takes place in the liturgy of the word. Then you move into this liturgy of the Eucharist. And, and again, I recognize I'm reading a lot, but I, I do think it'll prove helpful to grasp this in our minds. The second movement of the Mass is this liturgy of the Eucharist. It begins with the offertory as two lay people bring bread and wine from the back of the sanctuary to the altar. These elements will be consecrated for the sacrament of the Eucharist. Another lay person brings the financial gifts for the support of the church and the care of the poor. While these three people are coming forward, the priest prepares the altar for the celebration of the sacrament. Um, let, me, let me move then into the, the heart and the summit of the celebration. It's called the anaphora, referring to the kneeling of the Catholic faithful as the priest carries out his offering. After giving thanks to God the Father, the priest leads the congregation in singing the Sanctus, you know, holy, holy, holy. Uh, the priest then engages in the epiclesis. That is, he calls on the Father to send down the Holy Spirit to transform the bread and wine. Next, in the institution narrative, the priest recites the words that Jesus spoke when he instituted the Eucharist at the Last Supper. Again, I, as, as we observe the Lord's Supper, so often this is what we'll do. We, we, we read through. Now, I'm saying you're, you're, you're going to recognize certain things. You're like, I cannot... There's some commonalities here, but what we're going to recognize is vastly different understanding um, to what is going on here. So when they read Christ's words at the Last Supper, um, is, it's not the priest's words. It's the words Jesus spoke. Um, let me just move on here. A prayer is offered with the element of the wine, and, and by these actions of Christ and the power of the Spirit, the bread is transubstantiated or changed into the body of Christ and the wine is changed into the blood of Christ. Um, it's followed by the anamnesis, which is the church's remembrance of Christ's death, resurrection, and second coming. Next is the oblation by which the church offers to the Father, the pure, holy, and spotless victim, Jesus Christ. Uh, this is not a bloody sacrifice, but an unbloody one. We'll, we'll read that language here in a minute. It's a representation of, of Christ's sacrifice. Um, the priest breaks the bread. Um, he puts a piece of the wafer into the chalice of wine, symbolizing the unity of the body and blood. During the breaking of the bread, the faithful proclaim the Agnus Dei, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As the priest elevates the host for all to see, he says, behold the Lamb of God. Um, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. The congregation responds, I won't read one possible response. Uh, the faithful then stream forward to consume the consecrated bread, which is the body of Christ, and drink the consecrated wine, which is the blood of Christ. Most commonly, they take the wafer in their hands. Less commonly, they receive it on their tongue. They sip a bit of wine from the chalice. After both actions, they respond with amen. They return to their seats and join the rest in reflective silence. The mass concludes with two final elements. The priest pronounces a benediction, saying, may... Almighty God bless you. And then he announces, go forth. The mass is ended. Um, so even, that's interesting because in, in Latin, this phrase um, speaks of mission as, you know, the missa, 
So ita misa est, you know, so this is the reason that the Roman Catholic liturgy is in fact called the mass. So this would be from the Catholic catechism of the church. Holy mass, uh, that's the name for it, because the liturgy in which the mystery of salvation is accomplished concludes with the sending forth of the faithful so that they may fulfill God's will in their daily lives. So this would be why it's referred to as the mass. So as you're looking at those different parts of the mass, you know, you see this scripture reading and the homily and then a creedal confession. I don't know if I even read that, but often they'll, they'll recite from the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. So creedal confession. Um, and so this is just their order of service. We're not bothered by the word liturgy. So sometimes when we hear liturgy, we're like, oh, not Catholic. But, but like liturgy is just referring to, you know, the planned service, the order of service. We, we have a liturgy. Like I think all of you, without even like looking at the planning center um, outline of what, what our, our songs are going to be today, you probably do a pretty good job of like outlining what our service is going to look like. In fact, when we give our announcements, we often will say everything that happens after this is commanded of us in scripture. And so then we walk through the, the elements of worship. So we have a liturgy. So that's not the bad word here, the liturgy. It's what, what they're doing during the liturgy of the Eucharist, their view of what is taking place that is an attack on the all-sufficient once-for-all work that Christ accomplished on the cross. And so while we observe the Lord's Supper as a memorial of, of what Christ did, they observe the Eucharist because it is actually, it's, it's an it's a offering to God. It's a sacrifice of Christ. They would, they'll want, we'll see this in a minute. They're going to want to use a word of um, um, re, well, I wish I would have highlighted that. What is it? Re, um, somebody saying that? Reinstitution? Representation. Representation. That's it. That's the word. It's a representation of the sacrifice would be the word they're using. But really, if you're recognizing, when we read these verses in Hebrews, uh, this once for all sacrifice, a representation, if you still, if you're, if you're, if you're calling down Christ as a, you, it's, it's a re-sacrifice of Christ. And so this once for all nature of, of the person work of Christ is, is rejected in this understanding of the Eucharist. And so, so there you have the, the parts of the service. And so what I want to do then is, well, you'll notice already the emphasis on the second half. You know, if we're thinking you know, word-based, the highlight of our gathering is the preached word. So much of what we do is, is, is proclamation, reading the scripture, explaining the scripture, singing about the scripture. Um, so much of what takes place in, in a mass is very much Eucharist-oriented. That is the, the highlight and the emphasis here. So, so now let, let's move then into what, we keep talking this word Eucharist. What are we even talking about? What is the Eucharist? Here's, here's one uh, uh, author, Catholic author. He wrote a book called The Faith of Millions. And he says this, his name's John O'Brien. When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, that the consecration, when, when the, the, the substance changes, when, when the consecration takes place and the, the bread turns in, is transformed into the body of Christ, when the blood is transformed, when the, when the wine is transformed into the blood of Christ, at that, when the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne and places him upon our altar. 
to be offered up again. When you read that, you almost think that sounds like some of this critiquing the problems with Roman Catholicism, right? No, he's like praising what's taking place. He, this priest reaches up, brings Christ down and places him on an altar. And this is the tremendous words of the priest is what we're reading here from, the, from this. It's the, it is a power greater than the saints, power greater than the angels. And this means a lot in Roman Catholic context. It's a power greater than the Virgin Mary is what even a Catholic would say about the priest calling down Christ to um, place him upon the altar. So um, I'll read just something a little bit later. The priest brings Christ down from heaven, renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man. Not once, but a thousand times, says this uh, Roman Catholic author. I mean, what troubles you as you read this? You know, it, it is this is an offense to the gospel, and so it is offensive to read. Uh, I think it's helpful to be mindful of, but this this really is an attack on on the once for all substitutionary uh, death of Christ. And so that, that's what's happening in the Eucharist. And so what I want to do, I'm just going to read a couple. Um, we could go to a variety of sources, but in front of us, what I'll do, because it's wordy, I wanted to put it in front of you and just read through it. We're going to look at the Council of Trent. So this is a 16th century document. This would be a, the counter-Reformation. So if you think of what takes place in the Reformation, this would be the response from the Roman Catholic Church to uh, Protestant reform. And so the Council of Trent is, is this older document. But then a lot of what we're going to look at is something from the 1990s. When we just walk through, I've already read from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. These would be what, what they would believe, and, and it's, it's not dated. It's, you know, 1992, I guess, would be when it was written, but 94 translated into English. So what we're reading about is what the, the church currently teaches and currently believes about the Eucharist. So here's from the Council of Trent. Um, this is canon number one. First thing, right? If anyone denies that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist are, are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and consequently the whole Christ, but says that he is in it only as in a sign or figure or force, let him be anathema. Do I need to move over? My block, Neil. So Canon 1, the Council of Trent is saying anybody who denies that, that the, um, the bread and the wine is not really, truly, and substantially the body and blood of Christ, let him be anathema, um, accursed, you know, um, judged by God. Now, it's interesting. Language has changed since, since Council of Trent, where, where anyone who would reject Roman Catholic doctrine would have been anathematized in the 16th century, later would end up being viewed as just invincibly ignorant, <laughs> would, be language, would be language that's used later. And that, that's softer than anathematized. But, but we became invincibly ignorant. So, so in this room, if you adhere to you know, our statement of faith, uh, about um, the ordinances. You, were, you would have been anathematized. In fact, we won't look at any because there wouldn't be time to do this, but so many of, of the, those martyrs of the faith that we know from Protestant Reformation, do you know what they were being quizzed on when, when they are um, about to be burned at the stake? It was in regards to transubstantiation. That's what, that's what they were supposed to be 
rejecting and they were unwilling to reject. And so they were anathematized. They were martyred for their faith. So anyway, so anathematized and later it's invincibly ignorant. Now we're actually referred to as separated brothers. And so there's very much an inclusive movement in the Roman Catholic Church that, that this is the one true church, the Roman Catholic Church, but, uh, but God saves people from outside the church. He saves Muslims. He saves people from other faiths. So there's very much an inclusive understanding now of, of things. They, they don't, but, uh, but they still view the Roman Catholic Church as the one true church, and they still, this is what they teach. There's nothing different about what was taught in Canon 1 of the Council of Trent in regards to the fact that it is truly, it is really, and it is substantially the body and blood of Christ. That would be... Um, Roman Catholic teaching. Let me move on to one other statement from the Council of Trent. This is about a year later, uh, the session 22. So you read Canon 1, and they got started there. Boom, anathematized on everybody who uh, doesn't see it as transubstantiation. Session 22, a year later, uh, the sacrifice of the mass is propitiatory both for the living and the dead. And for as much as in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, that same Christ is contained and immolated in an unbloody manner, who once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross, the Holy Synod teaches that this sacrifice is truly propitiatory and that by means thereof that it is effected that we obtain mercy and find grace in seasonable aid if we draw nigh unto God, contrite and penitent with a sincere heart and upright faith with fear and reverence. Point here, it's a sacrifice. It, it, it pays for sin. It satisfies God's wrath on, on these um, venial sins. If we were to look more carefully at like these, these normal sins, and it helps prevent you from committing mortal sins in the future. And so it pays for sin. Um, it is a propitiatory sacrifice. So that's what the Council of Trent would teach in regards to the Eucharist. Um, let me move over to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. On the, the Catechism here, when, which you read in front of you, the church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. So this is just talking about the seven sacraments as a whole. They are necessary for salvation. So as we're walking through, just thinking through what takes place in the Mass, well, the Eucharist is the, the focus, the, the highlight, and the Eucharist is, as one of these sacraments of the Catholic Church, is necessary for salvation. So does they have to continue saved weekly? That yeah, so there is, in fact, Cardinal Bellarmine would say that the greatest of Protestant heresies is assurance of salvation. And so, like, you'd think, what would a Catholic say? Probably, like, faith alone, justification by faith alone or something. But this, this, um, this Catholic theologian who would be the Pope's theologian back in you know, this counter-reformation would say the greatest of Protestant heresies is this idea of assurance of salvation. And so you are, you are um, at baptism uh, as an infant. You're, you have original sin and your baptism washes away that, that sin. But then you're going to continue to sin. And so the sacraments are just going to continue to cleanse you from that sin that you have committed and even help prevent you from being just like as bad as you could be in the future. But, but you're going to continue to have to have your sin paid for. And as we'll see in just a few minutes, then when, 
when you die, the sin is not paid for, still has to be paid for in, in purgatory. And so what takes place at the Eucharist, you're, you're paying for, you're sacrificing for, on behalf of your sins and the sins of the dead. So, um, so there's, there's just ongoing sacrifice, unbloody, but sacrifice for sin. So when someone's denied the Eucharist, like I guess that happened with the president. So that's like a pretty damning. That's right. And it was a panic during COVID. What do we do? And um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the same concerns we would have had. But, uh, you know, the Catholic Church really had, they, they had to make statements from the Vatican about how to approach COVID. Because you'll even see one of the, one of the, um, in the catechism, you're called to faithful attendance of the mass, but, but you have to go at Easter and faithful um, adherents go more than just Easter. But, but you're, there is an obligation. I think you even heard that word in the, the priest language to that guy's question. There is an obligation to attend the mass because it's at the mass that the Eucharist takes place. And it's only, you know, the Eucharist that would do that. Anyway, okay, so are we looking at, hmm, we're not, it's probably, it's my computer. Tell you what, I'm gonna just, Turn that off, and then I'm just read a few others. So it's necessary for salvation. Let me just read from uh, the next one. This is from the Catechism. This is question answer number thir- or just thirteen hundred seventy six, because Christ our Redeemer. Are y'all able to not look at that? I think that'd be really distracting to me if I'm saying something you're not looking at. Because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the church of God and this holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. The change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Okay, there you go. It's right in front of you. So what you're seeing here is, is their definition of transubstantiation. So when, when the priest prays, what he prays, um, the, the accidents of like what you're seeing, it still looks like bread. It still looks like wine, but the substance has actually transformed. So when you're thinking transubstantiation, tran, like changed. Substance, the substance has changed. And it's the act of the substance changing, transubstantiation. And so they're saying it is actually the body and blood of Christ. And so that, that's what um, that's referring to. Um, Sacrifice of Christ at the Eucharist is one single sacrifice with, like the sacrifice of Christ that took place, you know, is the same, and in the same sacrifice is every sacrifice of the Eucharist. So you have this once for all, that's the trying to use the once for all language of when Christ died, Um, but this, what takes place at the Eucharist is this same sacrifice uh, that took place on the cross takes place in the Eucharist. So as you're just looking through what I'm kind of writing down is some of these concerns on your handout of the cat, that's taught in the catechism. Uh, the Eucharist as, of, as with other um, uh, of these uh, sacraments are necessary. It's this particular sacrament is one where, where Christ's body and blood is offered up and it's the same sacrifice that took place um, on the cross. Now, here's where it gets 
pretty interesting as well. Again, I think you're just going to be listening, not reading. But uh, in the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist adoration. I mean, it makes sense. If you're going to say this is actually the body and blood of Christ, you know, Christ present with us, really, truly. So what do we do? We worship it. And so there's adoration of the, the body and blood of Christ. And so I was even reading somebody who converted from uh, the Protestant faith to Catholicism that said, one evening we had an opportunity to be at mass where there was a Eucharistic procession at the end. I'd never seen this before. So as I watched row after row of grown men and women kneel and bow uh, when the monstrance passed by. That's the, that's the box that would contain the, the real presence of, of Christ. So, and she watched these people bow, kneel. These people believe that this is the Lord and not just bread and wine. If this is Jesus, that is the only appropriate response, she said. If one should kneel before a king today, how much more before the king of kings, the Lord of lords? Is it safe to kneel or not? And I continued to ruminate. If this, if this is not Jesus, then what we're doing is gross idolatry, is what she said in regards to this. And then she concludes that this is appropriate. That she, she did convert to Roman Catholicism. But so what you're recognizing, what takes place, the genuflecting, the bowing, the adoration, the worship of what they're viewing as the body and blood of Christ is idolatrous. And so even if you think of the Reformed catechisms of uh, even like the Heidelberg Catechism aggressively and rightly addresses the idolatrous nature of the Eucharist. And so other Reformed confessions would confront this, that, you know, you recognize that this is a strange understanding, but it is an offensive and wrong understanding to view the, the, this memorial event as an actual offering, an actual sacrifice that actually truly has the body and blood of Christ. And so it's, um, it's an attack on the work of Christ. It's also idolatrous by very nature. Um, one, 1371, um, this question and answer refers to what I was just referring to a minute ago. The Eucharistic sacrifice is also offered for the faithful departed who have died in Christ, but are not yet wholly purified, so that they may be able to enter into the light and peace of Christ. So when they're partaking of the Eucharist, the Eucharist is being um, offered up for the faithful who have departed. So it's um, for those who have died. And then what's interesting about the, those, uh, the bread and the wine it, this, it's got a, a lasting presence on it. The Eucharistic presence of Christ begins at the moment of the consecration and it endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsist. It's often why um, there would have not been a, a willingness to, to give the, the bread or the wine to someone of the laity because they might spill, they might drop, they might, you know, waste that's why there was instruction about not eating. It used to be, I think it was at least 12 hours of fasting before the Mass because you didn't want to mix Jesus with other food in your system. Those things have, have not continued. But um, there, there were certain rules that would have been in regard, because, because the, it becomes the body and blood of Christ and remains it um, as long as it subsists. Christ is present whole and entire in each of the species and whole and entire in each of the parts in such a way that the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ is, is what 
what this uh, statement is seeking to articulate. And so you're just seeing over and over in all of these different, this is just a portion of, of what you could read about in regards to the, the problematic nature, the, the gospel denying nature of the Eucharist, the understanding of the Roman Catholic Eucharist. It's necessary for salvation, so it denies faith alone. It is, um, it's, it's actually the body and blood of Christ, so it's denying the once for all sacrifice. Um, it's the same sacrifice that took place. It's, there's adoration that takes place, so it's, it's worship, um, and it's for those who have died. So, um, you know, if, we'll read here in Hebrews, um, just a response to this. And again, it's just, it, it remains the body and blood of Christ. Once it's consecrated, it remains that. Um, so let me just really quick look at just, the, let's just look at a few verses that would really help us to think carefully about why this is so problematic. So we'll look at Romans 6, 9, and 10. Um, thankfully, you have these verses in front of you, so you can just consider them carefully, but we really don't have to make much comment. I think if we just read these verses, it'll prove helpful. Just listen to what Paul would write in Romans 6, verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Well, let's flip over to Hebrews and just spend... Uh, some time on a couple passages that all interact with this once for all reality of Christ's substitutionary death. So Hebrews 7, 27. Uh, uh, let me jump back to 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. I mean, it is finished. He did this. He offered up himself, died on the cross, paid for our sin, um, satisfying God's wrath once for all. That's what Hebrews 7 is reminding us of. Turn over the page or two to the right. Um, Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to have those who are eagerly waiting for him. To save those, I'm sorry, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hebrews 10. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you hear even that, that um, it's appointed for man to die once, and after this face judgment. Uh, that speaks to this whole, you know, Eucharist for the dead. Um, the once for all nature that's just repeated over and over and over again just is, is a is corrective to the, the faulty understanding of transubstantiation. Um, it's not necessary for salvation because it, we trust in Christ alone for salvation by faith alone. Hebrews 10 though, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down 
at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's your image of complete, finished. He sat down. So, So he did what he came to do. He lived a perfect life, died this once for all sacrifice, paying for sin, satisfying God's wrath. He sat down at the right hand of God. Um, And even uh, look at the language of verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So, So to repeat it is to denigrate it. It's to deny the the what is what is accomplished what is completed what is done by christ and so i've gone over a little bit i would just say i i understand you know emotions and how this can be tough to to wrap your mind around to think of what this communicates about many who you know and care about so well in regards to what they're setting their hope in um the eucharist and uh not in christ in his completed work and that this ongoing, they, they need uh, to trust in Christ alone for salvation. I would just say I don't participate in Roman Catholic Mass. When I say participate, you know, like don't, don't be a part of the, the Eucharist. Don't, don't participate in what takes place. Think of why. Well, think of so many who even recognize the significance of this that would die for their faith in defending um, the, uh, the gospel as opposed to what was being taught by the Roman Catholic Church in that counter-reformation. All right, let me, let me pray. And then um, there are other questions that may end up needing to be like emailed today. We, there's other things that are gonna be happening like immediately after this. So let me, let me just pray and then feel free to submit questions you have about this series. We're gonna continue for the next several weeks. Me, Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this morning. Just thank you for the time we could spend interacting on uh, you know, what we've, we've been discussing. It's hard to hear, but I pray we'd focus on the person and work of Christ that we delight in what Christ has accomplished, that we would worship our Savior, Jesus Christ, for his completed work. He came to earth, born a woman. He lived a perfect life, uh, died in our place once for all, paid for our sins, satisfying your wrath, and is now seated at the right hand of God because he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at your right hand. So we just thank you for the finished work of the cross. May we delight in its implications and may we look forward to remembering the personal work of Christ um, each time we partake of the Lord's Supper. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.